Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Yo, yo, yo. It is the Cerebral Faith Podcast that you are listening to. This is part five in a podcast series that I'm do that I've been doing on the historical evidence for Jesus's resurrection. In part one of this series, I described the criteria of authenticity, although I prefer to call them principles of authenticity, such as multiple attestation, the principle of embarrassment, the principle of historical fit, the principle of enemy attestation, the principle of early and eyewitness testimony and so on. And I explained the methodology that, his, the, that I would be employing to get to five historical facts which undergird the inference to Jesus' resurrection. The five facts being, one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Two, his tomb was found empty the following Sunday morning. Three, the disciples sincerely believed that Jesus appeared to them alive after his death. Four, that Paul, a a church persecutor, converted to Christianity on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. And five, that a skeptic named James converted to Christianity on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. And I applied the criteria of authenticity to the historical documents that we have available to us that tell us about the historical Jesus to come up with these five facts. I did that in part two of this series. In part one of the series, I explained the historical methodology and I I applied it to show that Jesus believed that he was divine. And in part two, I applied it to come up with those five facts, which undergird the inference to the resurrection. In part three, I used abductive reasoning to show that the resurrection of Jesus, that God miraculously raised Jesus from the dead, is the best explanation of all the data. There is no explanation that can account for these facts other than that God raised Jesus from the dead. And in the next episode after that, I refuted what is often called the antecedent probability objection. Now, in this blog post, this final installment in the series, I'm going to be answering a few unanswered questions that skeptics often bring up in conversations with, uh, with me when we debate the, the case for Jesus' resurrection. And these questions really don't affect the case that much, but it still bothers some people. And they still bring it up. And some of them do think that it weakens the case. So, what are some of those questions? What are some of those objections? And and how should we answer them? Well, one question that I often get is, why didn't Jesus appear to Pilate and the Pharisees? A lot of people ask me uh, this question. Even my my dad asked me this question one night when we were watching uh, the 1970s miniseries Jesus of Nazareth starring Robert Powell. He asked me, why why didn't Jesus appear to all of those who were opposed to him, like like Pilate and the the Pharisees and the the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and, and stuff like that? You know, if Jesus really rose from the dead, why didn't he? Surely he would have done this because the Bible teaches that God wants all people to be saved. See 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4. And that Christ died for the entire world. John, see John 3, 16, 1 John 2, 2. And that confession of Jesus' lordship and in his resurrection are requirements for salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. So, why didn't Jesus appear to Pilate and the Pharisees so that they could believe in him? 
so that and believe in him so that they could be saved? Well, I, I propose several answers. One, who says that he didn't appear to them? It's often overlooked, but there's a passage in the book of Acts that suggests that Jesus did appear to at least a few of the religious leaders, resulting in their conversions. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, quote, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. End quote. Emphasis mine. Now, granted, it could be that these might not be the same priests, the same religious leaders who were constantly trying to trip Jesus up during his ministry and condemned him to death. But they could be. It's possible that some of these that some of the people who ridiculed Jesus, opposed him throughout his ministry, and, and even voted for his death were among the five hundred individuals whom Jesus appeared to in first in the first Corinthians fifteen creed. After all the the first Corinthians fifteen creed does not give us the the names of every single one of the 500 individuals Jesus appeared to at one time. So, some of those 500 individuals could have been staunch opponents during Jesus' ministry. So, while we don't know that he didn't appear to them, we also don't know that he did not appear to them. Uh, secondly, is if he didn't appear to them, it could have been the case that it would have done no good anyway. I mean, if the skeptics of today are any indication, no matter how good the evidence is, they will always find a way of avoid, to avoid following where it leads. If people don't want to believe something, they won't believe it, no matter how strong the evidence is. It could have been the case that had Jesus appeared to Caiaphas, Caiaphas would have said that it was Satan trying to deceive him. I mean, that's not out of that's not at all implausible. After all, the religious leaders said that Satan was the power behind Jesus' exorcisms. See Mark chapter three, verses twenty to thirty. Um, if Jesus appeared to Pilate, Pilate might have explained his appearance away as a hallucination or a vision, uh, as a as a result of a guilty conscience. Only God knows how these people would have responded to a postmortem appearance of Jesus. If it would have done no good, then Jesus would have just been wasting his time appearing to them. In, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh had more than enough evidence to know that Yahweh existed and wanted him to let the Israelites go free. Yet it took a dozen plagues over a period of time before he finally consented. And even after consenting, Pharaoh changed his mind again and chased after the Israelites who were on their way to the Red Sea. People who truly desire not to believe and repent won't. Okay, let's move on to question two. Question two is, why are there no appearances in Mark's Gospel? Most scholars are in agreement that Mark's Gospel is the earliest Gospel to have been written. Matthew and Luke were written sometime after that, and then John was the Johnny-come-lately. The Gospel of Johnny-come-lately. <laughs> um, and they point out that Mark's Gospel contains no appearances. There, I mean, there's a longer ending to Mark that contains appearances, but the earliest manuscripts end at verse 8. And if Mark's original gospel, the one that he penned, ended at verse 8, then it is the case that the earliest gospels contain no appearances while the later ones do. Some skeptics have argued that this is theological embellishment over time. Now, there are three problems with saying that because Mark contains no appearances, Matthew and Luke contain some, and John contain the most, that, that this, uh, this is a, a, an, evolutionary tree, an evolutionary lineage of theological embellishment. Three problems with that. And the first problem is that even though Mark doesn't include appearances, he doesn't, he doesn't, show Je he doesn't narrate Jesus showing up and say, Peace be with you. I am risen, and, and then narrates that the, that the women and the disciples fell to their knees in worship and, and things like that. He, he doesn't narrate that kind of stuff. But 
he does he does say that there will be appearances of the risen Jesus. Mark's gospel ends with the women coming to the empty tomb. The women see a young man in the tomb, and the young man tells the women, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Mark chapter 16, verses 4 to 5. So certainly Mark believed there would be appearances. He, he just didn't record any interactions between the risen Jesus and his apostles. Secondly, the 1 Corinthian 15 creed predates Mark. Remember, earlier in this podcast series, I argued that the earliest tradition of Jesus' post-mortem appearances is the creed cited in 1 Corinthians 15. The 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the creed cited in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, was given to the Apostle Paul, most likely by Peter and James, five years after his conversion, which is also five years after the death of Jesus. And this creed is what Paul passed on to his Corinthian readers. Now, this creed contains several appearances, including appearances to the twelve disciples, to Peter, to James, to 500 people at one time, and Paul includes all of the apostles, which I guess would mean the twelve disciples plus Jesus' brother James and Paul, because they were considered apostles as well. Um, and then Paul adds that there was a, an individual appearance to him. So, 1 Corinthians 15 Creed, uh, for the uh, 1 Corinthians 15 Creed dates to five years after the cross. And Mark's Gospel, even by the most conservative evangelical dating was written in the 50s, but more liberal scholars date it later to, say, the 60s or the 70s. But wherever... It, no, scholar, no scholar puts Mark's gospel chronologically prior to, to even 1 Corinthians, much less the creed that preceded the writing of, of that letter. So, here's the point. If any embellishment is going on, it's going in the opposite direction. It's going from appearances to non-appearances. Now, finally, the evidence from Paul and the church fathers let us trace the claims of resurrection back to the disciples. Even if we threw out the Gospels entirely, we could still affirm that the disciples claimed that they saw Jesus alive and they and that they really believed it through the writings of Paul, Polycarp, and Clement. Remember, uh, in, in the previous episodes, I said that Irena uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian independently report that Polycarp and Clement were disciples of the Apostle John. And that they conversed with John, they learned from him, and they conversed with others of Jesus' twelve disciples. And in Polycarp and Ignatius' writings, they say that the disciples were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, that he appeared to them. So Clement and Polycarp multiply attest that the disciples claimed that Jesus appeared to them. The Apostle Paul, in his epistles, also say that the disciples were preaching that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Paul, in Galatians 1, Paul records two trips that he took. The, the first One of those trips is recorded in Galatians 1, and the other is in Galatians 2. In Galatians 1, Paul says he spent 15 days with the apostles Peter and James. Don't you think that the resurrection would have come up once in that conversation? 
Indeed, in Galatians 2, he specifically says that that's why he went to Jerusalem, to compare the Gospels that he and the other apostles were preaching. He wanted to make sure that the Gospel he was preaching is the same Gospel that the twelve disciples were preaching, and he said, they added nothing to my teaching. And in fact, after citing the 1 Corinthians 15 Creed, Paul says, Whether it is I or they, this is what we preach, i.e. Jesus' post-mortem appearances. Paul gives us a direct link to what the disciples were claiming, just as the early, uh, and as again, as I said, the early church fathers Irenaeus and Tertullian say that Polycarp and Clement were students of the Apostle John. So Polycarp and Clement give us a direct link to what John and the other apostles were saying. They... So we have three independent sources that attest that the disciples were preaching Jesus' resurrection. And they didn't just claim it, they really believed it. Because church history is unanimous that all of the disciples were brutally killed for making this claim. No one would die for a lie that they consciously believed was a lie. The fact that they died for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead proves that they really believed it. Why did they believe it? Because they saw him. So, for these three reasons, the fact that the Gospel of Mark doesn't report any postmortem appearances doesn't hurt my case one little bit. Okay, question three. Don't miracle stories in other religions discredit the resurrection? Skeptics, both scholars and laymen, argue that the miracle stories in other religions, they e that, that they either disprove or cast doubt on the resurrection of Jesus, as well as the other miracles re reported in the Bible. And sometimes it's posed in the form of this question. You reject all of these other miracles as being credible or true, so why do you accept the resurrection of Jesus as being a fact of history? Aren't you being inconsistent? Aren't you being... Cherry pick, aren't you a cherry picker? Cherry picking, what, what miracles you want to believe and what miracles you want to disbelieve. If you're going to accept the miracles of the Bible, you need to accept the miracles of Islam and Mormonism and Buddhism and so on. What should we say in response to this objection? Well, I can give three reasons why this objection doesn't carry any, any weight. The first is that the historical evidence establishes that Jesus rose from the dead. Most of the people who who make this objection don't even don't realize that there even is any evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. They assume that you you just believe the resurrection of Jesus because the Bible says so. But in parts 2 and 3 of this podcast series, we saw that there is good historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You just using the standard criteria of authenticity, we established that 1. Jesus died by crucifixion, 2. His tomb was found empty, 3. The, dis the disciples believed Jesus appeared to them after his death, 4. A persecutor named Paul converted to Christianity on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus, and 5. That a skeptic named James converted on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of Jesus. And... In part three of this series, we saw that no explanation can account for these five historical facts other than the miraculous explanation that God raised Jesus from the dead. So that is why we are within our rational rights in believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, by contrast... Other miracle claims in other religions tend to be rather poorly attested. Sometimes the sources come centuries after the event is alleged to describe, such as the miracles of Buddha and Krishna. Or the miracles are found in only one source, like Islam's Hadith, which report the miracles of Muhammad. This isn't the case with the New Testament records. Even the most skeptical liberal scholars all date all of them to within the first century, which is only a mere decades after the event. 
The fact that other miracles are poorly attested or made up cannot be used as an argument that the resurrection of Jesus is likewise poorly attested and made up. In fact, in fact, each miracle needs to be examined on a case-by-case basis. Secondly, if Christianity is true, we don't have to explain away uh, or reject other miracle claims. We would expect to find at least a few miracle claims in other cultures at other points in time. In the Bible, God in the Bible God acted supernaturally among unbelievers such as healing Naaman's leprosy in 2 Kings 5. According to the Bible, demons can perform actual supernatural wonders or counterfeit miracles intended to confound people such as the Magi of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7 to 8. Uh, and the fortune teller who uh, harassed the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 19. Therefore, Christians are under no obligation to disprove mi- miracle claims and other religious traditions and writings. In fact, in Brian Gadawa's Chronicles of the Nephilim and Chronicles of the Apocalypse series, he supposes, and this is based on... Uh, this is based on biblical doctrine. Uh, we talked about this in um, episode, uh, was it 14 of this podcast series? Um, I interviewed Brian Godawa for the uh, Chronicles of the for his Chronicles of the Apocalypse series, and and he, he suggests that a lot of these false religions, with all of these various different gods with lowercase g, are the fallen watchers. The, the gods that were judged in Psalm 82, and that they masqueraded as these mythological deities to lead people away from the one true God and into idolatry. God, at the, at the Babel event, gave the 72 nations in the Table of Nations in Genesis 11 to these gods, and these gods inspired the cult, their cultures to make up all sorts of fantastic stories about them, like, like Zeus inspired uh, gr- uh, Greece culture to say that he was the creator of man, and that he is the one who controls the storms and, and things like that, so that they would fear him and worship him and, and, and stuff like that, and, and so, and also, I mean. If Christianity is true, we we would have no that would be expected. Also, if 1 Peter 5:8 is correct and the devil roams the earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour, it shouldn't be a surprise that every single culture in the world has had a belief in evil spirits. Okay, thirdly, Miracle claims in other religions can usually be explained by a naturalistic theory. Um, legendary embellishment can account for the miracles of Muhammad and Buddha. But this explanation fails for Jesus since, one, the epistles of Paul, which mention the resurrection, only dates to within a, f- a few decades after Jesus' death, 1 Corinthians, f- uh, Corinthians being dated to AD 55. Two, there is good evidence, as we saw earlier, earlier in this podcast series that the creed contained within 1 Corinthians 15 dates to within only five years after the death of Jesus. That is way too early for legend to develop. And three, through the Apostle Paul and through the church fathers Clement and Polycarp, we can trace the claim that Jesus rose from the dead back to the very lips of the Apostles. As explained in a, in a previous podcast episode, uh, si- since we can do that, since Paul, Clement, and Polycarp knew the apostles personally and testified that they were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, we can trace the claims of the resurrection back to the lips of the original disciples. And since we can trace the claim back to the lips, the very lips of the, of the disciples, the, Jesus' twelve disciples, then... The resurrection cannot be a legend that developed over time. Question 4. 
Um, this objection comes from Christians. Some Christians object to the minimal facts approach to the resurrection because they say that it is dishonoring to the Word of God. We are we, we are scrutinizing it and cross-examining the New Testament documents like a witness on trial. Isn't, isn't this sacrilegious? Isn't it sacrilege to subject the inspired text to the same sort of historical scrutinizing that we subject secular text to? Aren't we expressing that we doubt God's word when we need some criterion of authenticity to tell us whether an event mentioned in it is true? It's important to realize that the minimal facts approach is trying to reach people who don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, and maybe even believers who are doubting. I mean, when I was going through a period of doubt, it wasn't good enough to just quote a Bible verse from me, because that's the very thing I was doubting might be true. Now, the minimal facts approach reaches unbelievers where they are epistemologically. It's not that I personally doubt or am skeptical of what the Bible says, but the people who I'm trying to reach are. This approach is entirely biblical. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17, uh, Acts 17 records two, two instances in which Paul debated with people. One instance he was debating with the Greek philosophers, and in another instance he was debating with Jews in a synagogue. When Paul debated the Jews, he referred to Scripture, the Old Testament. He, he appealed to messianic prophecies and argued that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. That's what That was his approach to try to win Jews to Christianity. But when he talked to the Greeks in Athens, he didn't, he didn't quote one Bible verse. He made philosophical arguments. He quoted their pagan poets. He appealed to general revelation to make his points. His message didn't change, but his method did. Likewise, when I'm trying to convince a Jehovah's Witness that Jesus is God, I'm going to quote Scripture, and I'm not going to use the criteria of authenticity, and I'm even going to quote New Testament authors uh, that... I'm even going to quote passages like John chapter 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 uh, to make my point that Jesus is God. But if I'm talking to an atheist or an agnostic or someone who doesn't believe the Bible is divinely inspired, then I will just, I'll make the case that Jesus is God by showing that, by using the criteria of authenticity that, and, and first show that Jesus claimed to be God, and then I'll show that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, which vindicates his claim to be God. God would not raise a heretic and a blasphemer. God would not resurrect someone who committed identity theft against him. So depending on my audience, depending on who I'm talking to, that's going to dictate what kind of method I use. And if I'm talk if I if I share epistemological ground with someone, if we if we both agree that the Bible is divinely inspired, then I'm just going to take that for granted and make my arguments on from scripture on that presupposition. If I'm arguing with someone who doesn't think the Bible is divinely inspired, then I'm going to make an uh, mountain argument that doesn't depend on that presupposition. And the minimal facts approach does not depend on the presupposition that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. We make our case from extra-biblical sources and archaeological evidence, and we use the New Testament sources, of course. We use the Gospels and the New Testament epistles, but we scrutinize them just like we would any other any other document. If it was a we we scrutinize the the uh, the letters of Paul like we would scrutinize the the letters writ, letters written by George Washington or Alexander Hamilton. We look at the bio, we look at the gospels of Jesus as we would um someone uh in the time period of Abraham Lincoln who wrote a biography about him. We just treat them as if they were just ordinary human man-made documents with no god behind them 
we apply the criteria of authenticity to them, see what kind of historical facts we can we can get from these, and then we make an abductive case for Jesus's claim to be divine and for his death and resurrection. Which, if, if you get those things, you get the you you get to the conclusion that Christianity is true. And I have to stress, you, you have to do, if you're going to be a good apologist, you have to do this. You have to meet your opponents where they are epistemologically. You have to, you can't just quote from the Bible. You can't do that. Okay, net, another question is, some people will say, I, that, they'll say, okay, you, you said that, Jesus' death by crucifixion was multiply attested in nine independent sources. But why aren't there more sources? If Jesus was such a, a dynamic figure, uh, why don't more historical documents talk about him? Um, for one thing, very few documents from ancient history have survived up to the present time. As Ryan Turner, author for CARM, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, wrote in an article on CARM.org, quote, There are a number of ancient writings that have been lost, including 50% of the Roman historian Tacitus's works, all of the writing of Thallus, and Asclepiads of Mendes. In fact, Herod the Great's secretary, named Nicholas of Damascus, wrote a universal history of Roman history, which comprised nearly 144 books, and none of them have survived. Based on the textual evidence, there is no doubt, uh, no reason to doubt the, the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, end quote. The fact of the matter is, there may have been more sources that spoke about Jesus and his death by crucifixion, for all we know but they most likely either decayed away or they just simply haven't been discovered yet by archaeologists. If documents aren't copied over and over and over again at a rapid pace, they aren't likely to survive for 2,000 years. Moreover, the evidence we do have for Jesus' death by crucifixion is overwhelmingly strong. Four secular sources, one Jewish source, and three biblical sources attest to his death by uh, by crucifixion, which, wait, we have um, nine independent, no, we have four biblical sources, uh, we have nine independent sources reporting Jesus' death by crucifixion, and as I said in part two of this podcast episode, it is statistically impossible for nine independent sources to all make up the same fiction and then proceed to treat it as a historical event. Nine independent sources all made up the same fiction and treated it as though it was a historical event? Please, give me a break. By the principle of multiple attestation alone, we are on very good grounds for affirming that Jesus is, that his existence, for one thing, and his death by crucifixion is a historical fact. But also, Jesus' death is enemy-attested in three sources, uh, sources which are ridiculing Christianity in the very passage in which they mention Jesus' death by crucifixion. Those sources would be Tacitus, Lucian of Samosata, and the Jewish Talmud. So this minimal fact is likely to be true on the basis of enemy attestation as well as multiple attestation. And in, in fact, it is in, multiply enemy attested. It's, we got three hostile sources. And there are several other reasons. I mean, the principle of embarrassment applies to Jesus' death in three different ways, as I point out in my book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus, which you can can get in paperback and Kindle on Amazon.com. So, you can ask, why aren't there more sources? But it would be foolishness to say that the, the sources we do have are insufficient to establish its historicity. Okay, next question. What about, what about those who say that Jesus' post-mortem appearances are like Elvis sightings? 
I was first exposed to this piece of atheistic rhetoric several years ago on Twitlonger. Uh, the guy I was talking to said that he he compared the postmortem appearances of Jesus to alleged sightings of Elvis. In case you didn't know, there are people who have claimed to seen Elvis after he died, and yet we don't give these claims any credibility. In fact, we have a tendency to dismiss them out of hand. And so my interlocutor my inter interlocutor, easy for me to say, uh, said, why don't we do the same with the sightings of Jesus? Well, here's why. First of all, Jesus did uh, Jesus left an empty tomb behind. Elvis did not. Anyone interested in disproving the resurrection of Elvis could go down to his tomb, exhume the corpse, and prove that Elvis didn't, did not re-enter the building. Now, had the opponents of Christianity did this back in the first century, they would have persuaded everyone that Jesus is still dead. Christianity would have died out before it even began. Given that it's still around, we can conclude that they did not exhume Jesus' corpse, and why didn't they do that? Because there was no corpse in the tomb to be exhumed. But this is, in fact, one of the arguments for the empty tomb called the Jerusalem factor. Secondly, Elvis sightings can be explained naturalistically. If only one person saw him at one time, that might have been a hallucination. Also, we know that Elvis impersonators are about. So maybe what these people are seeing are just Elvis impersonators. Thirdly, although this is very unlikely, it, it is possible at least that Elvis never died, but faked his death. I mean, while it is unlikely, it's still possible. But we saw in part seven, uh, I mean, uh, we saw, we saw in the previous, in a previous podcast episode, I think it was 17, or eight, I can't, I can't, rem I can't keep up with the episode numbers right now, um, we saw that multiple people saw Jesus on multiple different occasions. Jesus appeared to multiple groups, so there's no way they could be hallucinations. Hallucinations, especially ones that occur over and over and over again, they're impossible. And we also know, based on medical evidence, that Jesus was dead by the time they took him down from the cross. There's just no way Jesus could have survived the rigors of the scourging and crucifixion. And even, even if he did... He would have been in such bad shape that there would have been no way that he would have convinced the disciples that he was the risen Lord, of uh, that he was sovereign over life and death. The risen Lord. They they would have they would have known. Oh, he he survived. He's alive. We we need to get him some medical attention. They, <laughs> I mean, come on. First century people were not stupid. Most people tend to act like they were, because we have all the scientific knowledge and we we have. We know so much that the ancients didn't know, but ancient people were not stupid. If they saw someone, if Jesus had survived crucifixion and had appeared to them in such a bloody, uh, pitiful shape, limping, crept, uh, creeping about, bleeding, trying not to reopen his wounds, they would have been aghast. They would have been horrified, and they would have been trying, they would have, they would have, tried to get medical attention as fast as as fast as they could to try to to save him before he did die. So yeah, swoon theory just doesn't work. Jesus couldn't have survived, but even if despite all odds that he did, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have started a move a movement founded on the belief that he had risen from the dead. And so, comparing the postmortem appearances to Jesus to Elvis sightings just—it's not—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a disanalogy. There are plenty of plausible, non-supernatural explanations for Elvis, but there aren't any for Jesus. So, just doesn't work. Now, in the. Another question may be that, okay, I have said that in, at the very beginning of this series, that if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then rose from the dead, 
we can believe that Christianity is true. Why is that? Well, I said that Jesus, if Jesus rose from the dead, then God put his stamp of approval on everything Jesus said and did. Jesus claimed to be God. God raised Jesus from the dead. God, that means God put his stamp of approval on Jesus' claim to be divine. God would not put his God would not raise a person who committed identity theft against him. Also, I said that since Jesus taught that the Old Testament was divinely inspired, we can believe that the Old Testament is divinely inspired and authoritative simply because Jesus did. And if Jesus is God incarnate, as, as would be the case if he rose from the dead, that would be a vindication of his claims to be God, which we saw in part one, yeah, Jesus did believe he was God. Who would be in a better position to know whether the Old Testament was divinely inspired and authoritative, if not God himself? Jesus claimed that, uh, he's, that, that Adam and Eve were historical individuals, and that the flood story in Genesis 6-9 to actually happened. Who would be in a better position to know whether that was the case, if not God incarnate? Jesus believed that angels and demons really existed. And he believed that if you place your faith in him, you'll have eternal life. But if you don't, you'll end up in hell. As Frank Turek likes to say, if a person ra has been raised from the dead, I'm going to take very seriously anything he has to say. But you may be wondering, how do we know that how do we know these things about Jesus? How do we know that he believed the Old Testament was divinely inspired and authoritative? How do we know that he believed Adam and Eve were historical individuals? How do we know that he claimed that angels and demons really exist? And how do we know that he claimed that if you place your faith in him, you'll end up, you'll go to heaven, but that if you don't place your faith in him, you will end up in hell? Well, we can use the criteria of authenticity to... to to know these things, to know that Jesus claimed and believed these things. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true. He quoted it during his temptations in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Um, in one of Jesus' temptations, he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See Matthew 4.4. 4. Now, it, when the Sadducees questioned him about a man who had seven wives who all died and asked whose wife belonged to the man at the resurrection, see Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 28, Jesus responded, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures, Matthew 22, 29. According to Jesus, the Sadducees were in error because they did not know what the Old Testament taught about the afterlife. And in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17, we read of Jesus going into the Jerusalem temple, turning over the tables, and chasing people with whips. Jesus then quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But then he says that the people there had made it into a den of thieves. And later in the passage, he quotes Psalm 8, 2. This instance is likely to be historical for two reasons. Number one, it's multiply attested. Jesus turning over the table, chasing people with whips, and saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer, it's not only recorded in Matthew, but it's recorded in the Gospel of John. Matthew and John are independent sources, and therefore it's multiply attested. It's unlikely that both Matthew and John would make this up independent of one another. Number two, it's not very flattering towards Jesus, because it makes him appear to have anger issues. And he's not just angry, but he, he turn, he's turning over tables, and he's chasing after people with whips. Why would the Gospel authors depict Jesus in such a seemingly bad light? This, the reason this is significant is that in Matthew 21, 12-17, Jesus appeals to two Old, Te Old Testament documents, indicating that he believes that they have authority. So by the historical principles of authenticity, we, we've established that Jesus believed the Old Testament was true. What about Jesus' belief in angels and demons? Well, in Matthew 4, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, after having endured a few, tation, a few temptations, he said, Get away from me, Satan. 
Matthew 4.10. He believed that he was being tempted to sin by a fallen angel, and he commanded that fallen angel to get away from him. In Mark 3, we have a passage that passes one of these historical tests of authenticity. In Mark, th- in Mark 3, Jesus enters a house, and a, a, there was a crowd gathered, um, and it says, the, dis- the disciples weren't even able to eat. Verse 20, and when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Verse 21, then the passage talks about Jesus casting out the demon and the Pharisees blasphemed the Holy Spirit by saying that Jesus was doing it by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, We have good reason to believe that this narrative is historical because of the principle of embarrassment. His family thinks he's crazy. There's just no reason for Mark to make up this embarrassing detail about Jesus and his family. It's very probable that this was the case given the historian's principle of embarrassment. And since Jesus performs an exorcism in this passage, and, and, the, blaspheme, and the, the Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit in response, we know that Jesus was an exorcist. And if he's an exorcist, obviously, you can't be an exorcist and not believe demons are real. Right? Well, what about Jesus' belief that if you have faith in him, you'll have eternal life, and if you don't, you're off to hell? Well, Matthew and John both contain statements in which Jesus says this. Even They're different statements in different contexts, but it's still the same message. In, in Matthew, Jesus says, Therefore, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And in John chapter 3, that that famous Bible verse, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not have will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in God's only Son. So, multiple attestation. These, It's not the same saying, and they're different contexts, but it's still the same message. It's still the same, believe in me and you'll have life, Don't disbelieve in me and, and you'll die. That in both of these passages, it's the same message. So that's why this is why I would have unpacked how the criteria of authenticity showed what Jesus believed and taught in part one, but there just wasn't enough time to explain the criteria of authenticity, explain what Jesus believed about the Old uh, Testament and angels and demons and all that, and use the criteria of authenticity to show that Jesus believed he was God. I, I all, That podcast episode was, was like an hour and ten minutes as it was. So I had, to, I had to save that treatment for a future episode. Now, given that we know what Jesus taught, he taught, he, he said that he, he claimed to be God incarnate. He claimed the Old Testament was divinely inspired and authoritative. He claimed that angels and demons really exist. He claimed that heaven and hell are real. He claimed that if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. If you don't, you'll be under God's judgment. Since God, and since we have good historical evidence that Jesus died and rose from the dead, we, we can... God, we know that God placed his stamp of approval on Jesus' spiritual ministry. And therefore, we can believe these things because Jesus believed them. I don't believe in Jesus because I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible because I believe in Jesus. I believe that demons are real. I believe that angels are real, because Jesus said they were. I believe that every word of the Old Testament is is divinely inspired and inerrant, because Jesus said that it was. And he rose from the dead, after claiming to be God. So who, who would be in a better position to know than him? So, hopefully, I, I hope... We've come to the end of this podcast series. I hope that if you are a non-Christian, 
And if you have been following this podcast series on Jesus' resurrection since the beginning, I hope that I have persuaded you that Christianity is true. And if you want to know how to... How to if you believe it's true because based on the his, the powerful historical evidence and the good arguments but what if you you may be thinking where should i go from here now that i now that i believe that it is true where do i go from here you know there's a difference between belief that and belief in belief that is believing that christianity is true it's simply nodding your head in agreement with all of the creeds of the church. But that by itself is not eternal life. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe this, yet they tremble. James 2.19 says that the, even the demons believe that God exists. The demons believe that Christianity is true. Satan was probably there when... Jesus got out of his grave. And yet, Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says that the devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. So just believing that Christianity is true, agreeing with the creeds, is not enough to get eternal life. You have to have belief in. What is belief in? Belief in is when you take a step of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It's when you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You ask Jesus to forgive you and believe in your heart that he will. And that is how you are saved. Believe that Jesus, believe that and believe in. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he loved the world, no matter who is listening to this podcast, I can, I can say with certainty that God loves you. He loves you. He loves the world. The, the Greek word for world there is cosmos. It's all-encompassing. God loves everyone, the world. And John 3.16 says, He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and this is a gift don't think that you have to do a whole bunch of good works to please God you don't that you have to work your way that you have to earn salvation that salvation is something that God will give you if you just do enough good works no the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9 for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Bible is clear that we are not saved by any good works, but we are saved only by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this makes sense when you think about it. If we could work our way into heaven, if we could get into heaven by allowing our good works to outweigh our bad works, then Jesus' death on the cross would be superfluous. That's why Jesus died, by the way. Jesus died because he died as an atonement for sin. Jesus died taking the wrath of God upon himself, averting it, so that we wouldn't have to endure it. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, quote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, end quote. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, 
Quote, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. End quote. Jesus said, the Bible says Jesus died because he bore our transgressions. He, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He suffered for sins. He suffered for the righteous. He suffered for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The Lord loved us so much that he was willing to endure the most horrific torture known to man so that he could avoid condemning us to hell. We know just how horrific that torture was from part two of the series in which I explained the, the medical effects that scourging and crucifixion would have on a person. Jesus went through all of that for you. He went through all of that Horrible scourging and crucifixion because he couldn't bear the thought of being apart from you for all eternity. Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to be shredded to the point that he lost so much blood that he began to suffer hypovolemic shock. He loves you so much that he was willing to let the Romans beat him until his veins were laid bare and the very muscles sinews and bowels were open to exposure. Jesus loves you so much that he carried his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, even though he was severely weakened from the massive loss of blood. He loves you so much, he was willing to go through all of that to keep you out of hell. He endured hell for you. God is just, and as such he must punish sin. But because God is loving, he doesn't want to punish sin. God is love, for, as 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16 say. He's also just. Psalm eleven six tells us the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Psalm nine sixteen says the Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the works of their hands. God is just, so he must punish sin. God is loving, so he doesn't want to punish sin. But if God doesn't punish sin, then he's not just. He's not a righteous judge. That is what the crucifixion was about. God's love and God's justice kissed at the cross of Christ. If you are ready to receive him, if you want to come into a saving relationship with God, then pray pray this prayer dear god i desperately need you i acknowledge to you that i have broken your divine laws that i have fallen short of your divine standards repeatedly i am very sorry for my sins and the life that i have lived please forgive me I believe that your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, shed his precious blood on the cross at Calvary to pay the penalty for my sins so that I could be reconciled to you. I am ready to submit to you and be washed clean by the blood Jesus shed for me. You said in the Bible, in Romans 10.9, that if you declare with your, heart, with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, I confess Jesus as the Lord of my soul. With my heart, I believe that you, O oh God, have resurrected Jesus. This very moment, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for your unlimited grace, which has saved me from my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and giving me eternal life. Amen. That's it. If you've prayed that prayer with sincerity truly desiring to turn away from your life of sin and to be reborn by the Spirit of God, then you can have confidence that God has answered that prayer. John 1.12 tells us that when we receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts, we gain the right to be called children of God. If you've received the gift of salvation, you have become a child of God. Now, don't depend on any emotionally charged experience to happen to you. Just because you may not feel any different, that doesn't mean you aren't different. Your feelings can lie to you. You cannot trust them. The Bible even says this. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things. 
Some people do have an emotional experience upon conversion. They powerfully feel the presence of God. They, they feel a surge. But not everyone does. So don't depend on that. Don't, don't, oh, well, I didn't feel anything. Nothing sensational happened. The heavens didn't open up. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I, it must not have worked. God must not have responded. Don't, don't do that. Everyone's, everyone's experience is different. Also know that just simply reciting a prayer, like the one I just did, it doesn't automatically mean salvation. You have to actually mean it. You have to actually be repentant, actually want God to save you and forgive you, and you have to be, you have to swear to live for Christ. The words are meaningless unless you truly mean them when you say them. And if there are any former unbelievers out there who did say them, I am, I am grateful. Praise God. I thank God for your salvation. God bless you, my new brother and sister. So, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. If you want to go into more depth about the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection and the things that I've talked about in the past five episodes... You can you you should get my book My Redeemer Lives Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. It's written by me, Evan Minton. Um, until until Monday, you can get it for free from a Dropbox link that I created, having a having a give having an Easter giveaway. But if you are listening to this podcast after Easter of 2019 then you have to buy it from Amazon. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And I will see you next week. God bless.